my starting principle when I was trying to do this and basically, and let's not aggrandize it too much. It's not like I had like eight chalkboards and, you know, 55 books open on my desk. I just kind of like sat there and thought about it a little bit, but I thought, well, what if we said that our defining principle is do not cause unnecessary pain, right? That's my moral philosophy. Now you can cause pain sometimes if it's necessary, but of course, then you've then you have well, this infinite regression of, well, how do we define necessary? Necessary, Nece- right. Necessity. I'm like, I don't know, bro. Just ask me. I'll tell you. <laughs> I guess we do have an objective standard. It's me. <laughs> it's what, what Mark thinks about it. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to Gen Extemporaneous. This is a podcast where I come up with an idea, I do some research, I grab a bottle of wine, I bring everything to Mark, and he pontificates. In today's episode, Mark and I are going to be discussing morality. During this talk, we will explore moral absolutism, consequentialism, moral universalism, and moral relativism. This is a lead-up to our Inventing Anna True Crime episode. If you are interested in hearing more content from Mark and I, please sign up for our brand new Patreon, Gen Extemporaneous After Dark. That's where you'll find exclusive content, including extended conversations about our extemporaneous ad-free episodes, Video Thunderdome, where we pit our favorite 1980s videos against one another, and Internet Archaeologists, where we choose a date and dig through the internet to find interesting tidbits about that space and time. We want to thank you very much for coming to listen to us each week. We really appreciate it. Hi, Mark Snedeker. Hello, Christina LaRusso. What's up? Oh, did you expect me to have stuff <laughs> well, normally prepared? Normally you have something to say. Uh, once look, I'm this is a philosophy episode. I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Don't you worry about me, Cupcake. Okay. Well, I thought that you would have had at least something to say about the new Patreon. Oh, well, that is very special. Right now you can enter at the level of friend of Mozart, which (laughs) is very prestigious, for the uh, grand total of $5 a month. And you're going to get extra content from us. Mm -hmm. Probably nudity, I would guess. No, that Uh, is not what the after dark means. You know, just think about it like the real world, right? Yeah. When people stop being polite and start getting real. After dark. By the way, if you are ever telling anybody about our Patreon, it is legally required that you say it just like this. Gen X Temporaneous. After dark. (laughs) If you say it any other way, we will find you and sue you. So, okay, this is a subject that I've chosen because I feel like we need a little bit of contextualization for what's coming next week, which is going to be our Anna Delvey episode we're going to look it's going to be a part of our true crime arc yeah uh what we are seeing a lot in the true crime space is increased and ongoing interest in scam scam culture is with us to stay apparently i i think so and i mean with, i think that there's always been an appreciation for a good con obviously that's been celebrated in media and uh, for a long time Q the entertainer mr joplin wouldn't mind yeah so the sting obviously oceans 11 oceans 11 the original too right, with oceans frank sinatra Ele- and the rat pack mm-hmm. And then you get into these docu-series. True crime stuff. True crime. Uh, so Tinder Swindler was one. We're going to do An- Inventing Anna, which is a mini-series that was is based on a, an article written by Jessica Pressler for New York Magazine about a 
faux heiress yeah. who tricked New York's financial elite. That's really a part of the zeitgeist right now. And so I wanted to talk about that because most of our episodes about true crime have been about murder. But scam is, an, is a big part of it, too. Most it true is. crime is murder or missing persons. But really, I'm seeing so much more about scam. So we're going to talk about that. But in order to contextualize that, because where that conversation will ultimately go will be it'll, it'll be a sort of an ethical question. Like who was worse? Tinder Swindler or Anna Delvey. And I wanted to situate us in a topic that I know that you must have some insight into as a former philosophy student. Have I ever mentioned <laughs> that I studied philosophy? I don't know. Well, I, I mean, did. I know. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, you did that as part of the background check to see if you wanted to be podcaster partners with me. <laughs> That's correct. Does he have a philosophy degree? All right. I'll listen to him. Whatever. <laughs> I provided you with no letters of recommendation, Give by the way. Give me a hot take on um, well, you know what I'm gonna the philosophy really do? of morality. Yeah, so uh, ethics, or the philosophy of morality, is one of the most popular areas of philosophy because that's like one of the things you want philosophy to be able to do. If it's going to do anything, mm -hmm. it should be able to say what's right and wrong, mm -hmm. right? How should we live our lives? And that's originally how the Greeks approached it. Like, what is a virtuous life? How should we live? And they figured out ways to think about how we should live. Right. Which was, you know, kind of new uh, back then. So you do have to kind of, you have to start making categories, right? You start divide, you take a big topic and you start to divide it up. Okay. So we have ethics, which is really just what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. That's, you know, moral philosophy or ethics. Then you say, okay, are we talking about meta ethics, which is just kind of like high-minded, philosophical, how do we determine what good and evil are? Mm -hmm. How do we know what truth is? You know, the real hippie beret in a cafe type of stuff, right? Right. Then you have applied ethics. Mm -hmm. And that's really mostly what we think about when we think about ethics, situational ethics. Like, if this happens, how do we determine what is right and what is right in this situation? Mm -hmm. And then you can also have normative ethics, which is, you know, you should do this, you should not do that. You're good, you're evil. And that's basically based on how people actually behave in society. But I think what we're going to be talking about today is really applied ethics. How do we figure out, you know, what's the answer to this? Is this a good person? Is this a bad person? How do we know if they're evil or good. Well, and I think we will, especially when we get to that next, our next episode, the Inventing Anna episode, that's where we really will right. be applying Absolutely. that. So there's a bunch of different approaches to ethics. The big struggle for moral philosophy is how do we decide what our standard is. Is there an objective standard that we can then apply across the board, which is really the kind of the holy grail of moral philosophy? Mm -hmm. Or is it really just all relative and we just have to come up with some kind of system that's going to have to change with the times or whatever? So let's start out with some sort of like basic definitions and then we'll, we'll go from there. So moral absolutism. Okay, so moral absolutism basically means there is good and evil, and there's an objective standard for them, and it doesn't change no matter what the circumstances are. For example, thou shalt not steal. It doesn't say thou shalt not steal unless you're really hungry or your babies need food. It just says thou shalt not steal, which means every instance of theft is morally wrong. That's an absolute. So certain universal principles. Yes. Moral universal principles right. against which... 
every person's actions can be judged. judged. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, if you're one of those people who says, I don't judge, just turn off the podcast right now. Of course. Right. We all judge. You, it's can't, how you, you can't have an ethical system. You can't have morality if you're not judging. Correct. So you're judging, and that's okay. We embrace it. <laughs> um, it is a form of deontology. Well, and deontology is a particular kind of ethical reasoning. Something is intrinsically wrong or right, not based on the consequences of the actions. Which would be consequentialism. That's right. 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 Well, we're going to get there in oh, a minute. Oh, good. Okay. okay. So here's an example of moral absolutism. The ends do not justify the means, not willing to harm one person for the good of another or oneself. Conscientious objectors, for instance, in the military. The Ten Commandments. Justice. Etc. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. So there are they're just moral absolute they they, they just right. are. This yeah. is is right and it is always right. It is not Hakuna Matata. Mm-mm. I can tell you that right now. Definitely not. Um so where do you feel like you see most sort of moral absolutism? Do you where do you see that in like kind of everyday life? Well, if I could do a Gregorian chant right now, I would be doing it. (laughs) Religions, obviously, because they have, believe it or not, they have an advantage over a lot of other philosophies in that they do have, in their mind at least, an objective standard for right and wrong. Mm -hmm. It's revealed knowledge from their deity. Here's how we know that's right, because God said it was right. Here's Mm -hmm. how we know it's wrong. God said it was wrong. So they have a source they can go back to a touchstone that is immutable, theoretically. Mm -hmm. That's why they have moral absolutism, right? Because they have an objective bedrock upon which to build their behavior system. Mm -hmm. Their church. Well, that too. (laughs) Peter. Yeah, Peter. The moral bedrock of Catholic Church. Catholic how'd, Church. how'd that go? Not, you know, not, I, mean, they, I don't think it happened the way they thought it they would happen. They lost happen. their way there for a while <laughs> by immersing themselves in ultimate evil. So <laughs> that tends to, you know, kind of cheapen your philosophical approach it if does. you are evil. Are there any secular examples of moral absolutism? Well, there there might be, sure. So I think that moral absolutism plays out and it and it may be that it is coming from a place of doctrine or sort of indoctrination, but I also think that I see a lot of moral absolutism in day-to-day interactions. Oh, sure. Like people get very entrenched and they say this is wrong. Right. And but you can, these are not sophisticated philosophical systems right this is just selfish behavior and you think that you must be right therefore you act as if your philosophical system is an absolute but it doesn't stand up to any kind of scrutiny then they actually have to start thinking about their system and you find that they're much more flexible than perhaps they indicated earlier so what i would say is that they have they might you might have a very clear idea of okay this is mean right and being mean is wrong. It's not okay. Yeah. It's or this is unfair for you to be mean, and yet will turn around and be mean themselves. Of course, because to defend the thing that someone is being is slighting. Because they really don't have an absolutist view. 
They just have a self-centered one. Yeah. So they don't believe that mean is really always wrong, although they'll say that that's the case. Mm -hmm. But they're fine employing meanness against those who they think are mean. Right? That's their justification. Right. Well, you're mean, therefore you get meanness, but (laughs) meanness is always wrong. Except, you know, this one case where I really want to be mean to you. (laughs) So we have a temporary (laughs) lifting of my philosophical mandate (laughs) in order for me to call you a poopy head. (laughs) Right. It's like, it's so, it's funny. But I see that play out a lot in interpersonal. Because people suck at philosophy. Philosophy is fine to have all of these great theories and conversations. And we have a lot of, you and I have lots, we've had at least 79 (laughs) hours of, of philosophically based many times conversations. Philosophy kind of in that theoretical realm what good is it? It needs to get practical. There are things, the things that you talk about. But you can't, you can't, you can't just have one without the other. You can't have practical philosophy, practical ethics, practical morality theory without first having done the work on uh, the meta ethics. And that's what, if you, you know, if you, even people who don't really study philosophy at least usually had some kind of brush with Socrates at some point. Mm-hmm. And what he was asking were those kind of meta questions. They're like, well, you know, he's a good man. And he's like, what's a good What's man? a good man? <laughs> what makes a good man? They're like, you know, good. He's like, no, I don't know. Tell me what you mean by that. Right. And it forces people to think about their ideas. Mm-hmm. And they realize a lot of times, if they're honest at least, that their ideas aren't really very well thought out. I don't always think about things in a rational, systematic way to see if I'm doing the right thing. Whoa. Yeah, because I'm a human being, which might shock some of you. Oh, this is a big admission, yeah, everyone. But I mean, you know, not now look, I do better than most people. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> because I have thought about these things, right? I do try to think about why do I think this is right? Why do I think this is wrong? You know, what should my approach be on things like this? Now, sometimes it's like, I don't know, this is what I fucking want to do, dude. Now, I just this is my first instinct, so I'm going to be mean. I'm going to look at, you know, your cards when you went away to go to the bathroom. Whatever it takes. I knew you cheated at cards. <laughs> no, I didn't. Cheat at cards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe I did. I don't know. So you really do have to have those definitions, and that kind of bores people sometimes because all they want to do is talk about, you know, examples. But they want to be able to just jump into those cool conversations without doing the work of talking about what the definitions are. What do you, you know, you have to agree on what the playing field is. What do we mean by good? What do we mean by evil? What do we mean by right and wrong and honest and dishonest? You know, all those things. What do we mean by those things? And then how do we decide how to judge them? So that's the tricky part. There are times where I'm guilty of this too, but I at least am upfront about this. If I am, because I do work out definitions like you're describing, Mm -hmm. right? Like I'm constantly, constantly, my brain is constantly going, running through no wonder you don't answer your phone. I know. Well, a lot of times I'm reading too. Oh my God. So, but one of the things that I do want to talk about is Socratic method because this is a little bit of a diversion from the main topic. I'm all right with but that. But you brought up Socrates and Socrates. You know, so, so like, <laughs> one of the things that I always feel like I have to, I know you probably don't, but because you, you we do this back and forth with each other in, in conversation. It is a lot of times that way we'll, we'll like question each other. What, I, what if I'm, when I'm in conversations with people, I, I will be very direct and they'll say something and then I'll ask them a question about right. what they're saying, you know, or I'll acknowledge their question and, and not really, but not really answer it. Oh, I think, you, I, just keep, I think you employ the Socratic method more often than I do. 
Because I just true. go right to the judgment part. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they say something, I'm like, nope, that's wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, well, what did you mean by this? Yeah. You know, because you're empathetic and kind. Well, and it's not empathetic. Interested. But, but and, no, but I think it helps actually. See, to me, when you're arguing with someone, it helps to understand what their strongest argument is going to absolutely. be. Absolutely. So when I'm asking people questions, if I, if it depends on the kind of conversation, but if I'm asking you questions, I'm gearing up to shut you down. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to get your argument as strong as you can possibly get it. And, and, I'll, then and, show you and I it. will understand the whole, you know, what are, how are you defining things? Because a lot of times people, self you know it's semantics and, right? and then you're like okay well we've built this giant tower here oh let's just pull out this little jenga block oh your whole theory is collapsed how unfortunate for you but that's got to really sting <laughs> that's how you bad, should do it it's yeah. not a bad way to, to do it well you know what's interesting is that very and i've seen you do this a lot on on forums um online and i've seen you do it a lot they crumble i see it happen all the time they, they'll say they have nothing to say or they'll yeah. resort to saying you know calling you, you a name or yeah. whatever. You Put know, a like, shirt on, buddy. <laughs> you misogynist. Yeah, they just call me a misogynist. <laughs> so anyway, that's a that's a little bit of a, a side conversation that may actually end up in the, on the cutting room floor, but you never know. Who knows? Now let's talk about, so that's moral absolutism that yes. we were talking about before. Let's, let's glide into moral relativism. Yeah, so this is really where ethics gets tricky. Because if, if there's moral absolutism, then all you have to do is just identify the people who are straying from the uh, objective uh, good, right? That's easy. You just say, oh, okay, well, we don't allow, you know, whatever, dancing. We saw you dance. You're in the wrong. Easy peasy. You're in the stocks. You know, that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, we're putting you in the ducking pond, whatever. Mm -hmm. But with moral relativism – then it's more complicated. Then you have to ask questions like, what are the circumstances? Or is it different in this culture versus that culture? Mm -hmm. Or this religion versus this that religion? Or just in this different circumstance? Like when it comes to whatever, earning a living, maybe morality is different there than it is in getting along with your neighbors. Mm -hmm. Whatever. Mm -hmm. So that just means it's relative. It can be different depending on the circumstances. And that makes people crazy, which uh, justifiably so, because then it seems like the consequence of that mm -hmm. is everything's okay. Mm -hmm. Right, you can do everything. There's well, you you can do everything, but what is good, right? So like, oh, like what you mean is the, meta ethics? What is the, <laughs> I told you we would have to do that. <laughs> yeah, but what? So right, so so okay. it's easy. It's what's loved by the gods. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, we're all in philosophy one hundred and one here today. No, 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 no. I think you have to understand what is good with. In so the, moral relativism, good is still good. Yeah. Does it recognize that good is still good, but that other people might, that there's a continuum? Well, they, they will recognize that there is good and evil, but the definitions of those may vary from place to place, culture to culture, and circumstance to circumstance. The short definition of good is, is it morally praiseworthy? Now, that doesn't really fix everything, but it gives you a way to think about it. You know, hey, I picked up my pencil. Is that morally praiseworthy? No, right? It's morally neutral. Unless you're picking up your pencil uh, to give it to somebody or to get it out of somebody's way because they're going to trip and fall and kill themselves. So in my thinking about this, there are three general moral categories. Mm -hmm. Morally praiseworthy, morally neutral, mm -hmm. and then uh, I don't even know what we would call uh, evil, just uh, morally wrong. 
that's that's the beginning of that definition. Then you start to talk about the kinds of you know, want to have as your as things that count as good and things that count as evil. Ideally, you don't have to go through and define each one, right? Lying is evil, stealing is evil, murder is evil, cannibalism is evil. Ideally, you have an overarching set of principles that will will answer those questions for you. So that's why you get into these various philosophical systems, utilitarianism, consequentialism, existentialism, all these things. They have that what they're trying to do is make an argument that these sets of principles always work, and this is how we're going to be able to define good and evil. Even if there's some relativism involved, you can use these principles to determine whether you're in the right or in the wrong. In my opinion, ever really managed to do that Mm -hmm. perfectly? It's a very, very difficult thing to do, and that's why religious morality is so attractive, because there's less, you know, ambivalence. Yeah, 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 you're exactly right. Yeah, Descartes tried to build an entire philosophy from scratch, which I loved guys who were system builders, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's easy to be like David Hume and you come along and you just like doubt everything. You don't put anything back in its place. You're just basically, if if you think of Fraggle Rock and the doozers or the dozers or whoever are building all these intricate structures and the dumb fucking fraggles come along and just start chomping on it. (laughs) Like they're just destroying structures. They're not putting anything back in its place. All they're doing is eating... Well, but the, they're delightful and they sing well, wonderful they are, but, songs. Well, good for them. Guess what? <laughs> Philosophy doesn't give a fuck about your songs. Well, okay. So in a relative system, then, you could have an argument that the ends justify the means? You could, sure. Because then you're saying absolute good and evil isn't as important as what comes out of it, right? Mm-hmm. You can do a lot of heinous shit as long as... You got a desirable end. Well, would that then be more like consequentialism? It is. It's it's a form of consequentialism. It's a more Machiavellian form of consequentialism. But it's it's basically, yeah, if you get a good result, then what you did was good to get there. So let's say the what you want to achieve is food for your entire village. Mm-hmm. That's generally looked at as a good, right? You're sustaining life, you're mm-hmm. feeding your village. But let's say the way you decide to do it is by killing everybody in the next village and taking their shit. <laughs> if you believe that the ends justify the means, you're good to go. But if you think there's a more overarching ethical structure there that says maybe murdering your neighbors is wrong, mm-hmm. then less so. It's not easy, Christina. No, it isn't. People have been trying this for 5,000 years and they haven't quite come up with the answer. Now, would you say that moral universalism is really close to absolutism? Yeah, I think so. And that's where you get like like the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. right? Where they're just basically said, look, we have these lofty principles that we don't really know. I mean, it's like natural rights and, and things like that. We don't really know what the justification for this is. We're just going to say that it is. Like freedom is a universal great thing. Mm-hmm. And that should be at the center of everything we do. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I don't know. I like freedom, bro. What do you want me to tell you? Mm-hmm. You know, or uh, in, uh, in you know being in, uh, in enlightened. You know, just being a rational human. That's generally looked at as a moral good. Is it? Eh, I don't know. Now, Whatever. Is, is it something though that is intrinsic to each individual? Those freedoms. Then it's not universal. Then, or right? is it? Well, it's got to be intrinsic in- to. Humanity to is a, all, but also to the individual. Oh, certainly. 
but then, I mean, of course, then there are various versions of that. Now, if you go, if you slide into utilitarianism, mm-hmm. which basically says the morally correct action is the one that gives the greatest good to the greatest number of people. That doesn't really think about the individual that much at all. Mm-hmm. So like, hey, all right, we got to kill Ken. <laughs> Because it'll really benefit the village. Mm-hmm. All right. He's got a lot of stuff. You know, everybody will get a little bit extra gold. So we're killing Ken. But don't worry, because in the end, the village is going to be better for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what we're talking about here. Right. That's a relativistic approach because they're saying in certain circumstances, it's okay to kill Ken mm-hmm. because we're going to now achieve the greater good. We're going to achieve good for, you know, a hundred people. And, you know, it didn't work out that great for Ken, but too bad, so sad. But, but let me ask you this question first. Do you think that that relativism it, of some form of it is the most realistic and the most practical? Yes. Well, and I think that if if moral absolutism or objective morality were real, we wouldn't have as many different views on what's good and evil. Right. Right? I mean, it would be much more obvious. Now, in this day and age, even things like gravity are in doubt okay <laughs> but in general you know you would know right there and it wouldn't change from culture to culture everybody would say cannibalism is wrong but they're not right there are different i mean there are cultures where cannibalism is okay right okay but uh, let's let me let me pause you there and say yes but also no i think that there are certain acts that are actually maybe in like the lizard brain taboo right like and and cannibalism i would think would be one of them now most cannibalism is not subsistence cannibalism no they're not farming it's, people it's ceremonial so then yeah. it takes on a different then it's then it's subject to things like you know transubstantiation and right. things like okay so we do have this feeling as humans that there are some things that are just wrong and some things that are just right. Like the Holocaust, with very few exceptions, everybody's going to go, yeah, that was, that well, was wrong. Genocide is... Yeah, genocide is wrong. Wrong. But then, you know, when you try to actually, you know, define it and do the hard work, you find that, well, genocide's mostly wrong. But what if genocide was a consequence of saving all of humanity, right? Like if we could just kill the Amish, right? Mark, no, God. but I'm just saying, like, if we could just kill the this Amish. Is it theoretical, everyone? Yeah, it is. I, don't, I do not advocate killing the Amish at all, <laughs> especially if they're on their room springer. I mean, <laughs> come on, they're trying to party a little bit. So, but let's just say, it's like, if we could just kill the Amish, 90% of the problems on this planet would be solved. Now, I don't believe that that's true. I don't think the Amish are causing that many problems. Mm-hmm. But let's say that that were the case. Then you could make an argument that killing the Amish is a moral imperative, right? We could save, we could fix 90% of what's wrong with this planet if we just killed off those guys without mustaches. But you see what I'm saying, mm-hmm. right? But we do have these, this idea. In fact, when I took ethics, uh, I had the, my professor, Professor Harris, James Harris. He was, he was a very charismatic lecturer, which means, of course, he probably dated a ton of his students. That was the, <laughs> that was the rumor anyway. Oh. He was very good at getting us down a path where we'd be like, yeah, it's got to be relative, right? Because every society is different, da-da-da-da. And he's like, but I don't think you really mean that and that's how he would say it i don't think you really mean that and he would do these shocking examples like do you think 
if you see someone swing a baby and hit their head against a tree, oh, yeah, he would do things like that, and it, because he needs to shock you and get that visceral reaction to say, is that evil or not? And you not, and if you say it depends, he would roast you, right? Because everybody kind of knows in their head that's horrible. Yeah, right. That's terrible. Like to kill an innocent is a terrible thing. Well, okay, so is that the is that a universal standard that we can now apply? Like it's always wrong to kill an innocent. Mostly. But we do seem to have this moral compass, mm-hmm. this conscience, which is not a very scientific or philosophically sound appeal. Mm-hmm. Because of course there are people that don't have it. Sociopaths, right. psychopaths. Right. right. Oh yeah. Hundred percent. They, they lack that that mechanism. Yep. But we do think that for normal, healthy people, they have this, you know, general idea of right and wrong. I want to talk about some specific situations. Right. And do some applied ethics. Yeah. And I want us to talk about things like lies. I just want to share something about the generations. Right now, Gen Z, only 34% of Gen Z think that lying is morally wrong. 42% of millennials think that lying is morally wrong. 50% 50% of Gen X yeah. think that lying is morally wrong. Half of y'all are lying your asses off out there. 54% of boomers, uh, they feel that lying is morally wrong. And 61% of elders, greatest, so generation. greatest generation, silent yeah. generation, if yeah. there are any any of those guys. Well, I know that there are some left. Silent generation, certainly. Silent generation, certainly. Um, They're like 70s so, right now, right? No, I think. Their 80s. Yeah. Yeah. So, but isn't that interesting? So less people, you know, young people think that lying is morally wrong. So it could be a couple of things. It could be as you age, your concern about being lied to increases. So that could explain for that. Or it just... Young people are bad. Or what they're trying to say is that the relative value of being honest yeah. is is declining or more people think that there are reasons to lie as long as they are for a greater good or whatever obviously there's the example of you know tell me where your family is so we can go kill them right you're going to lie you might want to be might be tempted to lie about that mm-hmm. but hey did you check to make sure the oven was off oh yeah i totally mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that's maybe not the best lie Right? Because then maybe the oven could catch fire and burn your house down. But yeah, that is interesting that you kids love lying. Well, it would make some, it it makes some sense why maybe generations then clash a little bit too. If your moral compass is that far off, it's going to cause friction between, you know, yourselves and whoever, your colleagues or. And also I would be curious to see if those percentages change as those individual generational segments age. That's, that was my first point, that yeah. as you get older... But not just because I was raised in the 20s or something, but because I'm now an older person. Right. And maybe you've seen some of the consequences of... Lying. Or, or you just stop giving a fuck so much, right? You're like, yeah. you know what? Just tell the truth. You know, yeah. that's the way to go. Right. So that would be interesting to see if in 40 years, if Gen Z is like... Well, maybe lying's not that. Maybe good. lying's not great, right? Yeah. That's what I. That's what yeah. I. That, that was my first point. Is that as you as you're older, as you age, your interest in knowing the truth becomes more more essential to you. Presumably, yeah. Um. Okay. Then then there's an obvious one. I mean, and it's 
and I don't know, we talked a little bit about it, but maybe we want to talk a little bit more. Killing someone. Yeah. You know, so so there are, I mean, in self-defense. Yeah. Right? That's where it starts to get murky. Obviously, you know, if you just, I just decide I don't like you the way you, you look right now right. and I bonk you over the head and kill you, that would be wrong and crazy. Let's go back to Mark's, my, his, his founding principle, which is do not cause unnecessary pain. Mm-hmm. And let's include killing somebody as pain. As pain. Right. right? Yeah. Understood. So if I just go out and kill somebody, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to argue that that was necessary. But if the guy is trying to steal Mozart, I can make a stronger argument that, well, he was trying to steal Mozart, so I killed him. <laughs> <laughs> but you can make an even stronger argument than, of course, if you're preventing another death, uh-huh. right? Or maybe multiple deaths. Like uh-huh. this guy was a school shooter or something, uh-huh. and I killed him. Then you can say, well, I did I did not cause an unnecessary pain. And this is really a, sort of a utilitarian argument uh-huh. where I killed him so that he couldn't kill other people. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in international conflicts and even with individuals, there's sort of this idea, and I think it may have been like from a Dennis the Menace cartoon or something where I saw <laughs> this, which was, I thought he was going to hit me, so I hit him back first, where you kind of preemptively kill somebody because you thought they might try to kill you. And that's a little murky, but you can make that argument, right? I, I felt my life was in danger, and that's the like the Florida stand your ground statute. Right. Um, I thought he was maybe going to kill me because he was carrying a rolled up newspaper <laughs> and he was a foot and a half onto my property, so I gunned him down. <laughs> Okay. He was wearing a hoodie as well, by the way, if that helps you. So that's that's my take on murder. I think, oh God, I really struggle with some of it. Things like retributive murder. So yeah. the death penalty, right. right? Like I get, I'm on board with you about everything else you said yeah, there. Yeah. But, but I've been thinking about the death penalty and whether or not right. that's right or wrong. And, you know, like... Is it ethical? First of all, it's not effective. No. So let's put that right, right out there. So in, right. in in the spirit of defining things, you right. and I share the I, the belief that capital punishment doesn't. It's it, not it a doesn't do what it doesn't it's do intended what it to do. Yeah. Is intended to do. So I mean, and then you just you know, then you're stuck with the argument that well, they deserve this penalty, right? It's it's a retaliation. Mm-hmm. For what they did, it's hard to argue at that point that you are preventing a greater evil, mm-hmm. which you could prevent simply by locking them up for the rest of their lives. And it's you know there are all kinds of arguments about whether or not the state should really be involved in sanctioned murder, but it is a it is at least an interesting philosophical question and one in which there is no you know consensus really. Is it morally okay? to kill someone because they did bad things. We really have more of an emotional response to that, I think, a lot of times. Like, we justify a lot of our laws emotionally, Mm -hmm. which is not good philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. It's not good to say, well, it made me mad, so I'm doing it. You know, or I really want to see that guy suffer, so I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? What's your, you know, what's your argument for that? Well, I just, I feel it. It makes me mad, so I want to, it makes me feel better if I kill him. It's not a very strong philosophical argument on that side, in my opinion. But, you know, there are people who make it that say, you know, these people just need to be removed from society totally and prison isn't adequate to do that. So I wanted to actually kind of peel a layer off of this and think about, because you mentioned something about state sanction, you know, the state shouldn't be involved in murdering. There shouldn't be state sanctioned murder. 
thinking back historically, my my understanding, and I've studied this. So, yeah. I, I, so you you're know, saying your understanding is correct. I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> come on, people. This is not normal understanding. This is super understanding. The the whole idea of making murder a capital offense, mm-hmm. a, 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 you know, a, a crime against the state, is to take it out of the hands of families sure. who would then be fighting with each other back and forth because you know, sort of eye for an eye. So right. inserting the state, that's making a moral choice. Then not literally the state, but the builders of the state at the time are making a moral decision to say, well, if we step in. And we sanction the killing of this person. It keeps people from lynching. It keeps the or, people from or doing the Hatfields worse. and McCoys. Or right, whatever. right, 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 right. So they're saying we understand that maybe morally we don't want to be taking this yeah. football, <laughs> right. but, but it's we better definitely than having... don't want the Hatfields and the McCoys to <laughs> right, do it. Right, right, right. I mean, that's a an argument. I don't think it's a good argument. Because I think the state could accomplish the same thing by just imprisonment. And I think part of it is to try to put some structure on it mm-hmm. and some justification for the act, mm-hmm. right? And make it a little regulated at least. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, you can't just go out and kill someone because you feel like you were wronged. But the king, in all his wisdom, after hearing the evidence, might be able to decide to do that. Yeah. So the most famous and maybe most boring at this point is the trolley problem you have a trolley on a track the track splits if you go down one on the left hand side there are seven people tied to the tracks that will definitely die if you allow them to go to the left on the right there is one person tied to the tracks who will definitely die if you go down that side of the track now the the trolley right now is headed to the left it's going to kill seven people are you morally obligated to throw the switch and doom the person on the right hand track to death that is one of the oldest kind of thought problems i i have to go with the one person right so that's the spock approach right the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Mm-hmm. That's what Spock said when yeah. he was dying horribly in the radiation room. So now, one of the things to think about, though, uh-huh. is the switch operator. If he doesn't pull that switch, things that were going to happen just happen. But if he pulls that switch, now he's actively deciding that person's going to die. Mm-hmm. That could be a, an ethical quandary for him because, look, he's like, look, I don't want to be the one deciding that that person dies. Maybe it's a small child. I mean, utilitarianism dictates that I throw this switch, but I don't want to be responsible for murdering a small child, right? So that's his ethical dilemma. And then you you can debate like, okay, they were going to die anyway if I didn't throw the switch, so I just let happen what was going to happen instead of actively murdering a child. It allows for a lot of discussion of the various permutations of this argument. Yeah, and then I guess you could add in all sorts of layers. Like what if somebody's got, um, not, there are no kids or anything and the other one has a huge it has a family and right. all so these kids. How do you de- how do you, how do you determine? Yeah, who's I got you. No, I more. I understand. I still think I'd go with kill the one to save the many. What would you do? I don't know. I mean, it, it it's meant to be an almost unsolvable. It's the in Star Trek language since we're talking about Star Trek. It's the Kobayashi Maru, mm-hmm. right? It is the almost unsolvable problem. So I don't think that there's a great answer there. I think yeah, in general, you know, you should try to kill fewer people mm-hmm. than than not. Um, but let's say 
you look at the trolley problem a different way. Let's say that there's a rare disease that affects 10% of the population. And the only way to cure it is there's a certain mutation found in a small number of people, say 500 people in the country. But in order to get it from, we have to kill them. But it'll cure everybody. Do you do it? It's not. That's why utilitarianism kind of falls down a little bit because they act as if it's a mathematical formula. Greatest good for greatest number of people. Well, clearly, the greatest number of people would be 10% of the population. It's 30 million, 35 million people, whatever it is, that we're going to save by just murdering these 500. And they would say, no, the math works. People actually have that job when they're considering now, I think, when they do, when they go into battle. Oh, sure. And that's a little bit different, and we'll talk about that in a second. But this is really a more direct choice. Now, doesn't that kind of sound a little dissonant? Should we really be murdering people to save people or, you know, maybe just Mm -hmm. deal with the disease as best we can without murdering 500 people? Mm -hmm. Now, you are correct in that we do, in reality, assign value to a human life, like a monetary value, Mm -hmm. a strategic value, whatever it is. And we know that, yeah, commanders know that if if we go into this battle, we're going to sustain some percentage of fatalities. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, we got to do it. Or when we're you know, writing uh, pollution laws. We know that there will be a certain percentage of people that will die because of air pollution. Mm -hmm. But also cars are cool. (laughs) right right so it's it's a little cold-blooded and we try not to think about that too carefully Mm -hmm. because we really do make decisions like that you're right we make practical decisions and we basically say not every life is worth saving so let's bring it down to a a, a more granular level in relationships between people because really what i want to get to is is how how we talk about scamming sure why we are sympathetic to some and not sympathetic because I think that that, again, is a, it's a relativism. It is. Humans are caught between, there's a, always a tension, I think, between, in thoughtful people at least, between wanting there to be absolute rights and wrongs, right? This is right. I know it's right. This is how we should behave. And this is wrong. We should never do that. But also wanting to be a little bit more relativistic so that they're not so rigid that they can't fix a problem or that, you know, they just have to say, well, you know, whatever you're going to, you 500 people are going to die. That's just how it goes. Mm -hmm. So we always have this tension between, oh, this has to be right. This has to be wrong. And well, you know, let's look at the circumstances and see really if that's, you know, the case in all circumstances, because it's very easy to take someone who has a very absolutist point of view and lead them down a logical path that shows them, you know, you can justify all kinds of horrible shit or you can't solve certain problems because of this rigidity. But the other problem is people who want to be relative then also want to say, you know, at some point we know what's right, right? We know what's wrong. We all do. It's not like just individual for each person gets to decide. Mm -hmm. We know that being a serial killer is wrong. But then we would celebrate the most successful female sniper of all time, who I think is Finnish, right? And she killed like 200 people or 500, some outrageous amount of people. Mm-hmm. Shot them, killed them. You yeah. know, didn't interact with them anyway, just killed them. We're like, well, that's pretty baller, you know? Mm-hmm. Nice one. So again, it's very difficult. To, and we always have this tension between, I kind of know what's right and wrong, but I also kind of want to be able to, that to be a little malleable in mm-hmm. case I need to justify my own shit. 
Yeah, and I and and I think that we use that. We probably apply that to others. So like when we we have sympathy for some people who do a scam. Oh yeah. And then we for other people we say no that that person's terrible. They could be doing exactly the same thing, and for whatever reason, one ha- you know garners more. And it's very, yeah, it's very difficult to be intellectually honest when it comes to ethics, because if the person is very charming, right, let's say they're just a rascal, right? Like Han Solo. (laughs) Han Solo was a smuggler. He was breaking laws. He also murdered Greedo, right? He murdered that guy. He shot, he shot him first. We all know it. All right. So, but he's a rapscallion, right? He's, he's a scruffy nerf herder. So we want to be able to, he's charming. Right. Right. He, he, you know, he's, he's dashing and all those things. So we want to be able to say, well, you know, but Han's all right. <laughs> so we give, we give, we give latitude to the narcissists we in do. the world. We do. Well, we, if they're, they're so glib. Yeah. I love him. Just I know. throw things, throw money I mean, at him. Yeah, didn't you see how he said, I know, right? That was, <laughs> yeah. that was so hilarious. Oh that was, my God. That was savage, you know, whatever. And we, we do have a certain appreciation if they have a certain sense of style. Mm-hmm. And if you're, think about the old West, they lionized a lot of these murdering bank robbers, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. So they're like, you know, let's write stories about him. I'm like, you saw he just shot a whole family, right? That's the story. He sh- he murdered a family. They're like, yeah, but, you know, he said something witty on the way out. So it's okay. Oh I, why was that okay? I don't know that's that it should have been. But that's just how people are. I mean. Well, he, we, this is where I think it gets us to the next episode, which is the Anna, Anna Delvey, which right. is like, we're going to look at Anna a little bit the story, but then we're going to try and talk about the differences between how Anna did her scam and Tinder Swindler did his and who we think is worse. And I have, are I have all. thoughts. I know you do. And you're we'll going to the share them for in the episode, but I, that's, that's, and I think in me, that's me as an individual allowing my moral compass to go, well, I like her. Yeah. I mean, she's, she's, she or was, I, she I had think moxie. I right? really, or I hate her. What a terrible accent. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, like, legit. You know. <laughs> All right. Well, I enjoyed this conversation. Did you? I did. Get on get on the philosophy train here. <laughs> That's right. And by the way, this is not a very well organized philosophy lecture. Sorry, not sorry. Okay. So we have social media, Mark. We got them Twitters. I'm at Serious Produce and Mark is at Mark Eats Peach. And then we have a podcast Twitter who actually became sentient and talked to you the <laughs> other day. That's right. At Extemporaneous 2. Yeah, that made you really uncomfortable. I know it really did. It when was the podcast talk like, to you. Stop it. Because <laughs> this is, you're making it strange. So then we we have Facebook, Gen X Temporaneous, and Instagram, which is Gen X Temporaneous, and the Patreon. So you can look us up on, on patreon.com forward slash Gen X Temporaneous. And it's also linked on our Facebook platform. Um, we hope that people really enjoy this, not because you know we're going to retire on the $5 a month. We just wanted to be able to give you some additional content for those people who said that they want it, mm-hmm. right? If once, is, once a week isn't enough, that's great. You know, keep listening to the podcast. That's really the main gig, yeah. right? But yes. if you want to hear some additional content, Christina will work, you know, even harder than she already <laughs> does, if that's even possible. She's like a house elf. <laughs> <laughs> Like, if I throw her a sweatshirt, she's like, Christina has been given clothes. I am free. And she'll just walk away from the podcast. You weirdo. <laughs> but we, w- we would really love for you guys to to check it out. And maybe we'll post some samples at some point so you can see what's going on uh, and see if you want to venture behind the paywall after dark. <laughs> 
Okay, well, I'm going to say bye. Peace out, Cub Scouts. Wow. At one point in my undoubtedly sophomore year, I thought that I would have a shot to do this, <laughs> right? Because the, cause the, really the golden hind, right, the holy grail of ethical philosophy is to be able to come up with an objective moral standard that doesn't rely on revealed knowledge, i.e. religion. Mm-hmm. And so I had this in my head that like, I can do that. How hard can it be? Well, it turns out I was not successful <laughs> in, in that. 